Please turn with me now to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are amazed at this wonderful appearance, this wonderful revelation of the living God, indeed the Son of the living God to Moses, and Lord, the heart of God that is revealed in these things, and how we pray that you would open our eyes to see these things, and open our ears to hear them, and that we would know them, and we would believe them to our salvation and blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we carry on in Exodus chapter 3 and now the particular appearance of the Lord to Moses. Having considered the subject of the holiness of God that was shown in his appearance specifically uh, in the burning bush, the bush that was burning with fire and yet was not consumed, how it revealed to us the holiness of God, we now consider the nature of the message that he conveys to Moses. Now keep in mind that God had not spoken for some long time, for some 400 years And after such a long period of silence, what now is he going to say to this man in the desert? Well, in short, the message is good news, very good news. And so much so that I call this this sermon the gospel of Exodus, because that's what it is. It's the gospel of Exodus. What does that gospel consist of? Well, that God is a covenant-keeping, 
sympathetic redeemer. That's, that's the good news. For an enslaved and oppressed people there under the, in the throes of slavery and fa- of, under Pharaoh and Egypt, there could hardly be any better news than this, that their God is a covenant-keeping God. He has not forgotten the covenant that he made. He has not forgotten the promise that he made to their fathers. He is sympathetic to them. There they are suffering away day by day in the bondage and the slavery and the oppression, all that the Egyptians can dish out upon them. And yet their God knows these things, has heard them, has seen them, and he is sympathetic entirely with them. And what is more, and if it were that much, that's some good news. At least somebody knows about them. At least somebody cares about them. They're not forgotten them entirely. But what is more, that this God is prepared to act to redeem them. He is indeed a redeemer God. And this is our God, the God that never changes. This is the same God that we worship this very day, the same heart towards the, his people in the Old Testament, this is his heart that he has towards us. He is indeed a covenant-keeping, sympathetic, redeemer God. So that is, that is our, our, in brief, our, our sermon tonight. The Gospel of Exodus, with the three points, covenant-keeping, sympathetic, redeemer. So first of all, he is a covenant-keeping God. Verse 6 Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why has God appeared to this man in the middle of the desert? Why? The answer is because this God had made a covenant with the man's great-great-great-great-grandfather, with Abraham and with his descendants, and that included this man Moses, you see. Back in Genesis 17, 7, he says, I will establish, speaking to Abraham long time ago, I will establish my covenant between me and you, that's Abraham, and your descendants after you in the generations, in their generation for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you, you see. And so he's making this covenant, not merely with Abraham, but all of his seed for all time. And, and Moses was as much a party to that covenant as was Abraham himself. To be God to you and your descendants after you. And the, and the content, by the way, carries on from that. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see, that hasn't happened yet. That's not their situation. But God had made a covenant that it would be the situation eventually. God was going to keep that covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. He, 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 more that it would be more that, that God would cease to exist and that he should make a promise and, and not keep it. And that identity as a covenant-keeping Lord, remember, of course, that is his, his name, the, the Lord, as he's soon enough to reveal this name, uh, actually in, in the very next portion of this, of this chapter, he is a covenant-keeping God, and that is the root of all good news. And we think of ourselves, when we think of our condition, our situation, as we call upon a God, on what is the, ba- what is the basis of that? It is the basis of the covenant. Now, moreover, as in addition to the covenant made to Abraham and to all of his descendants, God had also made a very specific promise in Genesis 15. Now, this is when he had... Uh, cut the covenant, you know, and in verse 15, or sorry, uh, verse uh, 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, 
Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Speaking precisely as to what had happened. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge after the word day shall come out with great possession. Now as for you, you go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There it is. The perfect prophecy, the perfect promise that was made that is utterly relevant to the particular situation of these people as they were enslaved in a land that was not their own. The name of that land being Egypt. And God had made a promise that he was going to judge that nation and bring them out indeed with great possessions. And we're going to see the fulfillment of that. This is what Exodus is all about. The fulfillment of that promise that was found in Genesis chapter 15. And moreover, the the timing, which was something that had been left unresolved in our previous um, sermons, we we understand God's providence and all these things, but we wonder why has it taken so long? We wonder at that. We wonder even as why has it taken yet another 40 years after the beginning of the suppression? Why has it been going, going on for so long? And the answer we have here, there's a good reason for it. The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete, meaning that the movement of the Israelites into the promised land of Canaan, that involved the casting out of all these these people, involved the destruction of them. And God being a just God, this is not something he was just going to do for no reason. These were not innocent people. Keep that in mind. Not innocent people. And he was not going to do it on any minor or momentary provocation. It had to wait until the, the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites was utterly complete. And then when that sin was complete and God was at an end of his patience with them, then he was going to bring in his people to cast them out. And moreover, there was this specific time prophesied 400 years. God had not forgotten. He had not fallen asleep. He was not slack. None of these things were true. He came precisely at the time that he had prophesied. He's a covenant-keeping God. And he's a promise-keeping God. Secondly, he's a sympathetic God. We read in verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And much of the same is repeated in two verses later in verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Wow, such, such wonderful language. I hope you meditate on this language. I hope this is part of your meditation this week. You, you look at that verse and you say, this is our God. He is so sympathetic. He says he's seen the oppression. He, it's an, imagine, again, the, the, the use of the senses, as it were. This is the imagery that he's seen. I have seen the oppression. He's, he's looked. He's not looked away. That's always the possibility. We said that. It was a possibility for Moses himself. He was there in the palace. And had he chosen to remain willfully ignorant of the oppression of his people, he could have done so. He knew he was one of them. He knew he was identified with them. But he could have stayed in that palace and he could have shut his eyes to it. But no, no, he went out. He went down from the palace and he went down and he saw the oppression firsthand. And you know, you know that's going to change something. You know that's going to put into motion the chain of events that leads to Moses becoming the Redeemer. Well, so much more so the living God. 
as he sees with his own eyes, directs his eyes to see this oppression. And moreover, he's heard their cry. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And you, you imagine then the Lord hearing the, the, the shout of the taskmasters and the, the whip on the, the back and the forcing of, of this hard, hard labor that they were involved in. And, and he hears their cry, Lord, save. Lord God, where are you? And he hears their cry. He's not stopped his ears to it. And he says, moreover, I know their sorrows. I know their sorrows. He has chosen to direct his attention to them. He's not turned away. And now that knowledge is is before him. God is omniscient. He knows all things. We've said this before. So it's not as if he would otherwise be ignorant. What he is saying is that he has close and intimate knowledge of these things. It It is the object of his attention and meditation He knows their sorrows. This is a sympathetic God. And let me say, this is precisely what we have revealed to us in the image of the eternal and invisible God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, made man. Hebrews 4.14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are other religions that have unsympathetic gods. I could go through the list, but you have to believe me when I say that there are some other gods, false gods, of course, or no, no other god, but false gods. They are utterly unsympathetic to the plight of their people. But our God is not like that. Our high priest is not like that. He is utterly and perfectly sympathetic with it. And this, this God who is so sympathetic, so intimately familiar, having turned his attention, his eyes and his ears, as it were, to their people and their misery, what do we think then? If we say even in the case of a human flawed sinner like Moses and we say oh no he's turned his attention to his peep to the plight of his people you know that's the end of the palace he's going to have to he's going to have to stay with him he's going to have to identify with him he's going to have to do something because as, as flawed as he is he's a good man and we we can see it, it's going to happen how much more so than a good and a just God as he turns his attention to the plight of his people. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a sympathetic God. And you know he is going to do something about it. Well, that brings us to our third point then. He's also a redeemer. And this is the longest point in the sermon because redemption involves a number of elements and we ought to think about them all. Right? It is the, the most obvious thing that we think about is to be delivered from the oppressors, delivered from slavery. And it's certainly that. It's certainly that element, delivered from that. But it has also been brought into a place of blessing. That is part of redemption as well. And then that's not even done there. It's not even for its own sake that the people can live at their pleasure in some sort of retirement home, as it were. It's so that they might then ex- serve God acceptably. Right? That redemption is for the good purpose in that they might serve God. And it involves the invol- it, it demands the involvement of a redeemer God and furthermore the, re- the, the one whom he sends. Of course, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, but here in the Old Testament, sending this man Moses to be 
the Redeemer. Well, let's, let's start actually with there, with the involvement of the Redeemer God. So he says, I have come down. Very, very interesting and, and, and significant language. I have come down. Now, God is always involved in the affairs of his universe. He's no clockmaker, God of the deist, who simply makes a machine of this world and walks away from it. He's always involved in the affairs of his universe. But when the situation demands his more direct and personal and extraordinary involvement, then he is said to come down. That's what is said in Genesis 18. Uh, Speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah and the place ripe for judgment, he says, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. You know he's involved in that situation when he has come down to to, to go see it for himself. And that God would do this is precisely the desire expressed in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down that the mountains might shake at your presence. Because if only God would come down and see for himself, if only he would come down and be involved with the affairs of his people, then surely we would be saved. And that is the cry of the heart of God's people. Come, Lord, come down. Well, this idea, as you well know, comes to its ultimate fulfillment in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is ultimately where God really comes down. And he stays down, as it were. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has, in fact, come down. We have someone more than Moses. We have someone even in, in a better situation than even the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came down, and he did redeem his people through the instrumentation of Moses, but Wow, do we have something even more amazing than that. As this eternal Son of God took on human flesh, and even now he has this human flesh. He's never laid it down. He remains this way forever in heaven. And this is our Redeemer God. Well, he has come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's the, the element of which we speak. It, it, he, he is, he, the, the problem is this enslavement and he is going to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, just like the Goel, the Redeemer, which we spoke in other occasions. Matthew Henry, when he, this language, he says, it denotes his resolution to deliver them, that his heart was upon it, so that it should be done speedily and effectually. We love to hear it. It's good news, isn't it? I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And our, our heart rises and rejoices to hear such things. Now, as I say, he sends a redeemer. In verse 10, now come, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He's doing it himself, but he is sending this human agent, Moses, who is a type of Christ. Well, isn't it wonderful that he sends a redeemer? Isn't it wonderful this redemption that is being spoken of? Reminds me of what's in Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's the Redeemer, no matter how unworthy we might be. Indeed, we are worms of the earth. And Jeremiah 50, verse 34 says, The Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case. And this is something to keep in mind as we we go on. What What is Moses going to do? He's going to come as a lawyer, pleading the case 
to Pharaoh. You see more than once, he pleads the case. And when God does it, of course, it's not merely arguments in the court of law. He backs it up with his almighty power. And so he pleads his case with words, and soon enough he does it with deeds. And those deeds are more mighty and more powerful and more hard on the, on the, the, upon the Egyptians until they have no choice but to let them go. Eventually, the advisors of Pharaoh say, do you not see that Egypt is destroyed? This strong God, this Lord, we cannot stand before him. He has pled the case of his people, and we have no choice but to let him go. He's a stronger man. You know that. Lord Jesus Christ, when he speaks regarding Satan and he is able to redeem people from being uh, impressed and possessed by demons, he speaks to demoniacs and and, and we see that, uh, they, they, that, that these demons have no choice. And the reason why the Lord explains is because the stronger man has come. Right? As long as a strong man is there and guards his place, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger comes, he binds him and takes his stuff. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He pleads a cause of his people and he does so not only in word, but indeed he will break the arm of the oppressor. And, and take his people from his grasp. Now, furthermore, it is not merely a deliverance from. It's not like, well, I've delivered you, and I'll leave you here and, and, and wish you well. He, moreover, brings them into the promised land. He says in verse 8, I've come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land into a good and large land. Not a, not a bad and an, a, a, a small land, but to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. This is the goodness of God. This is the grace of God. Uh, he, he could have, had he chosen, surely provided them just a safe place. That would be good enough, wouldn't it? Take them out of this land of slavery, redeem them, and just bring them into a safe place, any random generic sort of place of moderate size, and maybe not exactly flowing with milk and honey, but at least with adequate water and with, with some trees or something. But no. No, the, the language here is a place of wonderful plenty, the sort of place that a gracious, loving God bestows lovingly upon his beloved people. And we know ultimately these things find their expression in the new heavens and the new earth, the land of which he is bringing you if you are his child, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved you from judgment and from hell, which ought to be good enough. But he's not just left you in some neutral place to exist. He's bringing you into the most glorious place imaginable, of which the promised land itself, however glorious, is but a, but a pale reflection. But even that's not the end of the story. Even as he has not brought us into to heaven eternally, just, just that we might somehow have some independent existence from him, he has done so that we might worship and serve him. So it was for these people. He has brought them from this land in which the oppression is so complete they cannot even serve him. They're not, their land's not keeping the Sabbath. They themselves aren't, aren't keeping the Sabbath day. They're being oppressed beyond that. They're not worshiping as they've, they've been instructed. They don't, have, they don't have occasion to do this because of the cruelty and the oppression of the people. And he is going to bring them into a land in which now they might serve him acceptably. And it, well, I'll just remind us of that. In verse 11, And Moses said to God, Who 
am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In verse 12, he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, he's, he's going to serve God, and all those people are going to serve God. And that's the beauty of this, this redemption is that all these people are now being brought out into a land of plenty in order that they might rejoice in the Lord their God. They will sing songs about their redemption. They will remember it. And they will be thankful. And in loving service, they will be glad to have opportunity to worship him in accordance with the instructions that they've been given. And brothers and sisters, that is our situation as well. Uh, again, there, there is such a thing as a kind of um, cheap grace gospel in which uh, the idea is, is you say a sinner's prayer and, and now there you are, you're, you're free from the, the penalty of eternal death. Well, that doesn't look like the gospel of the, and that's kind of the end of the story. And, and those churches sometimes barely know what ounce there is to do except to do evangelism. Well, I pray that we do ten times more evangelism than we do. We ought to. I pray that we put every Arminian church to absolute shame in our evangelism. I wish we would. Pray to God we would. But that's not the end of the purpose of the church, to do evangelism. Likewise, with, with the Christian unions, we were just speaking about this issue. So they, they really think that the only thing that they do whatsoever is evangelism. God didn't save us only to do that. He saved us that we might worship him acceptably, you see, that we might serve him, obey him absolutely every day of the week, and particularly that we might serve him on the Lord's day. That's the wonderful thing about having been redeemed. It is to a higher purpose. It's not just to a better place. It is to a higher purpose to serve the living God acceptably. Indeed, this is the fullness of salvation. This is the fullness of the gospel. said in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You see how it is? He's redeemed us from the hands of Satan. Who, what were we doing in Satan's hand anyways? We were serving him. Night and day we were slaves to this horrible demon doing his will. Blinded by his lies and all of our attention and all of our works and all of our efforts were directed to sin, were directed towards Satan. He saved us from that. And now, praise God, he's brought, he's brought us into freedom. Not that we'd serve ourselves. What is that? It's the same thing. That's slavery just as much. But rather that we would serve him. And he's done that. That's the work of redemption, the full work of redemption. Well, this is our God. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Exodus, that God is a covenant-keeping, sympathetic redeemer. And the applications are fairly straightforward. The first one is that we should embrace this redeemer. Embrace this redeemer. This is the heart of our God. What more could we want? Come into this covenant. Now you say, well, I'm not of the seed of Abraham. We understand why Moses, you've explained now why Moses was there, because by the flesh his great-great-great-grandfather was, was Abraham, and therefore he's part of this covenant. And it's no surprise that God would speak to him and that he would be redeemed. Well, the good news is that God has grafted many onto this covenant. And the, the, the work 
since the, since Pentecost has been that this gospel, which was always for more than just the the national people of Israel, there are always a few who came. We're reminded, for instance, of of Ruth and of Rahab and of others such as us from the nations round about, being brought in and grafted into that nation. Well, it is that that enterprise has vastly expanded in our day, and there are many, many from all of the world being grasped in, and uh, grafted in, and it happens only. Through faith in the gospel. This gospel is for you. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then what? Then this gospel, this, this covenant is now for your children. Having been grafted onto it, now the covenant promises apply to your children. And, and, and all over the world, more and more of these places are being grafted into the covenant people and new covenant lines being established. This is the beauty of the growth of the gospel. And you yourself can be grafted in. All you have to do is embrace this Redeemer as he is offered to you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for some, actually, you are part of the covenant line. This this God whom I'm describing to you is the God of your father and your mother. And for you, the work is very simple. It is to embrace this God of your father, this God of your mother, in order that the covenant might carry on as it should by faith. This is a covenant of faith. That is its nature. Abraham himself believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It began on the basis of faith and and generation by generation it carries on on the basis of faith. As one generation embraces the covenant God of their parents after another. And may to, would to God that this, this carries on for every last covenant child among us. It's handed to you on a silver platter. Embrace this Redeemer, this God of your parents. Secondly, we ought to rejoice in this God. Most of us have embraced this Redeemer, and we praise God for it. And if you have, what's your work now? Well, a great part of your work is actually to rejoice. And it's always, it's always funny, it's always amusing to me as I preach such applications. I keep having to do so. Why? Because for some reason... For some reason, we prefer being gloomy to being joyful. I don't know why that is. But our duty before God, if we have been redeemed, is to rejoice. Okay? We're going to see this as we carry on in, 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 the book of Revela- uh, in the book of Exodus. Well, yes, in Revelation as well. But as we carry on the book of Exodus, we will see that having been redeemed, God expects his people to rejoice. And, and he... And, and I, as your elder appointed over you, sometimes want to shake you and say, why aren't you, you joyful, having been re- received this grateful, this wonderful redemption? What more do you want? What more has God, what has God not given you? What promises do you not have? He who has come down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, having taken on human flesh and born all, all the things that our, our sins deserved on the cross in his own body, and what is more, he is, he's going to bring us into a promised land of which imagination cannot even begin to tell how wonderful it is. And all the good things that you yourself know, just like at the end of Joshua, said, so you know, you know in your heart, your mind, that there's not one good promise that he has made to you that he's not fulfilled. And your job then, such as it is, is to rejoice in this redemption. All right, we've spoken this morning, haven't we, about the reality. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something we merit. And what are we supposed to do? What is our part in it? 
well, let, let's at least be happy about it, right? Having received this great gift, you know, we can at least be thankful and rejoice. Well, anyways, as we know, we, I would say specifically in the redemption, but even as we learn here, so we're learning more about the heart of our God. We're learning more about the redemption of God's people in the past. We know something more about God. What does that mean? We should love him more. And, and loving, having loved him more, we should rejoice in him more. This is the eternal upward spiral as God communicates to us his own knowledge and love and joy. We, every little bit that we know about the whole work of redemption, it means that we should love him more. And loving him more, we rejoice all the more. So please rejoice in this Redeemer God. And thirdly and finally, please take comfort also that God knows your suffering. Because even as I say that your great duty as a redeemed person, man or woman, is to rejoice. We know that there is suffering yet in this life. He has redeemed us. Yet, as long as, and we're going to see, by the way, there's suffering, yes, in the wilderness, but even in the promised land. In this fallen world, as long as it remains, there is suffering, and you know that as well. And maybe that's what you said in your heart. You said, yes, you say that we should rejoice, but actually I've, I've been suffering recently. Well, I may not know it the way that I should, but do you know who does? The Lord God himself knows your suffering. I want to promise you that he does. I want to promise you that this God has not changed. He sees, he hears, and he knows about your suffering. The Lord is good, Nahum 1.7 says. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. We have a sympathetic high priest, as it says in, in Hebrews, and he knows all about our suffering. He's not forgotten. He's not blind to it. He's not stopping his ears to our cries. He knows it. And we should take comfort in the reality of that, because it's not going to go on forever. Before such a sympathetic God, our, our, our suffering cannot continue on forever. We have that promise that he will certainly save us fully and finally soon enough. Well, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful. Thankful, Lord, to see what is revealed to us in, in Exodus chapter 3. And your covenant-keeping God, wonderfully, perfectly sympathetic, intentionally so, looking upon all of our sufferings. And Lord, you are also a redeemer God. Lord, that your, your sympathy, your great love leads you to send a redeemer. And Lord, you have sent a redeemer. You have loved your people with an everlasting love. And because of this, you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. How, Lord, we pray that every last soul would surely put their faith in such a Redeemer, such a Savior as the Lord Jesus Christ. None better could be imagined. Lord, having done so, that we would rejoice. Lord, truly, this is a redemption that is beyond our imagination. Lord, we pray that we'd be nothing like these, these Israelites. Later on, even after they've been redeemed, they continue to complain and moan and be miserable. But, Lord, we recognize that there is suffering. You know this. We know this. But, Lord, we know also that you are perfectly sympathetic. And you will help us. You will send aid. You will help your people not leave us to ourselves. You will uphold us until the very end. Until which point at which our redemption is utterly complete. 
And you bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. And you enable us there to serve you in absence of all pain, having wiped away all of our tears, and to rejoice evermore. Well, Lord, we look forward to such things. And we pray, indeed, Lord, that we not take our eyes off of them. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.